In the beginning, we were created and designed to live and walk with God. But humanity traded the truth for a lie. We traded the glory and goodness of God for the world and our own ways. Separated from God, we were stuck in a pit of our own making. But Jesus broke through. Through His death on the cross and His resurrection, He rescued us from our sin, shame, and pain. Jesus shows us and teaches us how to live a new life, full life, a life that is upside down compared to what we are used to. His upside down, or rather, right side up ways are beautiful and perfect. He empowers us to live His mission, turning this upside down world right side up for His kingdom, His power, and His glory. Welcome to those of you in the room, those who join us online. So glad you're with us today if we've not had the chance to meet. My name is Adam, one of our pastors here. Looking forward to spending some time with you this morning. When I was newer to faith, when I was new to the whole church thing, I was given a book. And uh, to this day, it's probably the book I've given away more than any other book. I've talk, I talk about it all the time. Had a pretty big impact on me. And in the book, the author David Platt tells this story that stuck with me for the last decade now. He tells how in the 1940s, the U.S. government commissioned $80 million to build a troop carrier for the Navy. How uh, they wanted, the purpose was to design this ship that could quickly carry 15,000 troops in times of war. And by 1952, the the SS United States was complete, and it could travel at that point, it could travel like 44 knots, it could go about 50 miles an hour, Uh, it could go 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. She was the fastest, most reliable troop carrier in the world. The catch was, SS United States never carried troops was never used, uh, was put on standby once during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but never was put into action, never really saw its purpose uh, come to fruition. Uh, Instead, it was later decommissioned by the military, sold, and was retrofitted and turned into a luxury cruise liner, mostly for celebrities, political figures, and presidents. Instead of carrying 15,000 troops, it can now only carry 2,000 passengers, but those 2,000 passengers could enjoy 700 fancy staterooms, four restaurants, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck with heated pools, and all the comforts of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. What was unfortunate was in the 1990s, they were, cruise companies were deciding if it was worth putting more money into the SS United States, and they realized it was never really meant to be a cruise ship, so it was better off to just build new ones. So they decided to strip and salvage the SS United States, and for the last 25-ish years, it has been rusting away at a shipyard in Philadelphia. Platt, in his book, he uses this fateful story as an analogy for the church, That like the SS United States, the church was commissioned for a purpose. 
It was given a mission by Jesus himself. Not to carry troops, but to carry God's people, to carry the message and the truth of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And not during war like we normally think about it, but instead for spiritual warfare. You know, I don't know where you land on all this, but we believe that there is a real enemy of God, that there is evil and darkness in the world. He has many names, uh, most commonly Satan, and that he's come to destroy everything that God calls good. And that the church was given this mission, was commissioned to take the truth and hope and freedom and love of Jesus to the ends of the earth with an urgency to it. But unfortunately, throughout history, so many times and so many places, the church looks a whole lot more like a cruise ship. With its passengers enjoying the comfort pace sailing by with their feet reclined with their friends hanging out, sipping on some mojitos and eating bonbons or whatever, I guess, your pastry of choice is. You know, I remember when I first heard this story about the SS United States, I remember thinking, this makes sense to me. You know, at that point in my life, I was not so sure how I felt about the church, wasn't so sure about Christians, and I was like, why would anyone want to go on a cruise ship with Christians? They're not that fun, uh, so why would you do that? And, uh, but when I heard this, I'm like, this makes sense. Like, the limited Bible I'd read at that point, the limited Bible I understood at that point, I was like, this idea of, like, Jesus has a mission. He cares about people. He wants to get truth and hope and freedom and love to people. I could get on board with that. So now, I guess, the question for me at that time was, so this is the mission of the church. What is my purpose then? Like, what is my role to play in it? See, because you can tell pretty clearly the difference between a cruise ship and a battleship. You know, if you're on them with your eyes closed, you might not notice the difference, right? They both float. They both carry people on water. But when you're on it, you can tell a difference. There, there's a clear difference of what's happening. The, the urgency you have or don't have, the way you spend your time or energy. Right, see, on a cruise ship, it's all about you. It's about what you're there for. It's about your enjoyment, the comforts of vacation. I remember one time, I've been on one vacation with Annie. Uh, when we were, lived in Florida, we went on this uh, short few-day cruise and I mean, you can do so much on cruises. Like, there's so many things that you can do. Uh, there's so much food. There's like 24-7 food places. And I remember one night, uh, Annie said she wanted to go to bed. And I'm like, well, I'm getting my money out of this trip. So uh, I went up to like one of the top decks and got cheeseburgers and cheesecake at like one o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, this is what you do on cruise ships, I think. I don't know. That's what I'm going to do on a cruise ship if I go on one, though. Uh, and it was great. And uh, that's what you do. Right? That's the purpose of a cruise. See, but on a battleship... Every person on board has a purpose. They have a role to play. Each person has a task that is specific and contributes to the greater mission. And even when you look at them, right, if, you, if someone's standing on the shore or standing on the pier and they look out and see, you can tell pretty clearly the difference between a cruise ship and a battleship. So it's like, okay, Adam, then what is my purpose? What is my role to play in it? And I think the natural response then, right, for those who are followers of Jesus is, God, what does God say my purpose is, and am I living into that purpose? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't just give us his mission, his game plan. He also tells us what our role is, what our purpose is in that mission. And it takes place in the best sermon ever, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it starts off in chapter 5. So if you have a Bible with you, it's going to be Matthew, which is one of the Gospels. Matthew chapter 5, you can turn there. We're going to get there in just a minute. The Sermon on the Mount is this message uh, that's pretty powerful, and it's straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. And we're spending several weeks leading up to Easter looking at this message. It, it shows us what it looks like to be followers of his. And Jesus kind of shows that the way of the world and the way of Jesus are different. And at times, they directly contradict one another. In essence, just like that video we saw a minute ago, 
the way of Jesus feels sometimes upside down from the way that we're used to seeing things. The best sermon ever, it, it gets at the heart of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in the world today. It shows us what that means. So Adam, what is my purpose? What is our purpose as followers of Jesus? And one thing we don't wanna miss in the best sermon ever in the Sermon on the Mount, as much as I love that we're spending several weeks going through it, we have to make sure we don't miss the big picture in the message. This is one flowing message. It's not just a bunch of topics smashed together. It's one intentional instruction of what it looks like to follow him. And uh, Jesus kicks off the Sermon on the Mount with these, this quick bio, these like characteristics, these eight qualities of someone who's a follower of Jesus. And uh, Brian hit on that last week. And if you missed it, it's okay. You can catch it, bestsermonever.com if you want to. And uh, I just want to quickly go over those eight topics because these are eight qualities and people whose life has been surrendered and transformed by God. This is what those people look like, he says. He says they are blessed or they're happy or they're flourishing for people who are poor in spirit, people who know that they're desperate for God. They can't do it on their own. It says blessed or happy or flourishing are people who mourn, that are grieved by the sin in their life. They know they're a sinner and they know they need a savior. People who are meek, they have strength, but they hold it back. Strength under control. They lift others up and put others first. Blessed are those who are hunger for righteousness. They want nothing else other than what God wants. They want nothing more than the things of God. Blessed are the merciful, people who are gracious and forgiving, forgive others even when they're not forgiven. Blessed are the pure of heart, those whose motives are pure. They want the right things for the right reasons. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who build bridges, who bring peace, have this calm about them. And blessed are the persecuted, those who, despite what life throws at them, they know that God is good, that he's there, that there's a bigger picture happening behind the scenes. So he lays out these eight things. These are qualities, characteristics of people who are followers of Jesus. And after he lays out those eight qualities, he then says, okay, so now here's what your purpose is. So for the Christians in the room, he says, here's what your role is in the mission. This is your task that contributes to the greater mission, and it happens in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. This is what he says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What does he say? He says right there that your purpose, your role is, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. All right, let me summarize that for you. Here's Adam's summary of what he says. He says, you, followers of Jesus, you church, you have been given influence to make the world a better place. Pause. Adam, that is so corny, dude. What does that even mean? Like, you make the world a better place? That's something that should be like on a cringy greeting card or uh, like one of those wood signs you buy at Hobby Lobby or something. You know, like, what does make the world a better place? And some of you are offended right now because you have that on a wood sign in your house, and I apologize. Uh, what does it mean to make the world a better place? Let's take a look, one at a time, at those two pictures he gives us. He gives us two pictures that are unique, but have some, a common idea in them. So let's look at them. The first one's in verse 13, right? He says, you are the salt of the earth. Here's some quick facts about salt, since I know that's why you showed up this morning. Uh, in ancient times, salt had tremendous value. For us today, it's pretty insignificant. We'll throw it away or don't really take much mind to it. But in ancient times, it was very valuable. You know, in the Roman Empire, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, part of their pay was in a thing called a salarium. That's where we get our word salary. 
Part of their pay was this pouch of salt. Maybe you've heard the phrase, he isn't worth his salt. It comes from that time period. Because the soldiers didn't earn their salt. Because salt had great value. The reason it had great value is for multiple things, but the two kind of primary ones or most common ones were that it preserved and that it added flavor. It preserved, right? You have to remember, they didn't have refrigerators, they didn't have deep freezers, they didn't have ways to cool things, and salt is a natural preservative. You can pack salt onto meat, and it keeps it from rotting and going bad. So for a time like that, that's a pretty important thing to do, both for your own food to store, whether it's a drought or winter or some kind of way you can't get access to food, you wanna store it, but also for livelihood. If you wanna be able to have a business or trade meat or sell it and have some kind of income, so a great value for that preservative factor. And it's interesting, I think, that he says that we are the salt of the earth, implying the earth isn't salty on its own. It has to be seasoned with salt. I think we know this. I think we see the world around us decay. Houses don't maintain themselves. The earth erodes, buildings crumble, plants wither and die if they're not attended to. Even our bodies age and grow frail. Even our culture, cultures decay and corrupt over time. You've maybe even heard it or said it, you know, it seems like the culture is going to the wayside or the culture is decaying. It's as Joe Jesus says here, he's like, these things are all true. This is what happens when evil's in the world. He's like, but you, church, you, Christians, you are to be the preservative salt of the earth. You have the influence to make the world a better place. You have the ability to keep the world from decaying, to slow the decay of the world around you. You can preserve the world, but also salt adds flavor. Now, I don't need to tell you this one. Some of y'all love your salt too much, which is why you take high blood pressure medication. Your doctor doesn't like you. You got too much sodium in your diet. You put salt on everything. You put salt on salty foods. You put salt on food before you try the food. You love your salt. And one of the things you all love to put salt on, you love to put salt on French fries. Like you can't have too much salt on French fries. You put on all of them. And I'm about to make a controversial statement. It might divide the room. So I apologize in advance. But debatably, I've been told, the best french fries on the market come in a package that looks like this. Mickey D's. And all God's people said, amen. No, I'm gonna be honest. I'm not that big of a fan. I don't get the hype. I know I lost some of you there. You can't trust anything else I say. But I don't, I don't fully get the hype. But I can say that they've had taken a lot of our money because my wife Annie is a big fan and empty boxes like this end up in our house from time to time. But you love French fries from McDonald's. And some people are like, you could line up French fries from different places, and I can tell you which one is the McDonald's French fry. The way they're cooked, the oil, the ratio of the amount of salt on them is perfect. And some of you are crazy, I've seen you do this. Some of you take salt, and you put more salt on your McDonald's French fries because you really just don't like your body and your doctor doesn't like you, right? And you might even say to yourself, is there such thing as too much salt? Yes, is the answer. Yes, there is such thing as too much salt. Because I've never seen anyone take their fries and then do this. <laughs> they look tasty now, don't they? You, that looks real good. Anyone want one still? You want one? Anybody? Anybody want one? You guys want one? You can have one. You don't want this. There's now three services worth of salt dumped onto these French fries, and they're a day old. Uh, you might have health issues if you ate that. Right? We know that you're not supposed to put that much salt on something. That is gross. It is disgusting. Salt by itself is not good. You know that if you put that much salt, right? If a recipe calls for a teaspoon of salt and you put it in a cup, that is going to be disgusting. You don't want to eat that. The salt then, instead of adding flavor, ruins the thing that it's supposed to make better. Salt's supposed to be more subtle. That's where its power is in the food. In the same way, we've been called to be the salt 
of the earth. We've been called to add flavor to the earth, to make things better, not to drown it out by just pouring all this salt on it, but rather to be spread and to be seasoned. See, but the opposite's true also. Look what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Just like too much salt isn't the purpose, if, it, if it's not salty at all, if the salt has no use at all, then what's it good for, right? If, it's, if it just stays in the shaker, if it's just in a pile, then it's not helpful, it's not beneficial to anyone. Where salt has its benefit is when it's spread out, when it seasons the things that it's meant to season. Likewise, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, right, he's saying that if, if you're disconnected from the purpose you were given, if you forget what it means to be salty, if you, if you just stay in the shaker, right, if you aren't used and spread out to be the salt of the earth, then it's kind of useless. If you're disconnected from the Father who's created you and called you to be salt of the earth, then he says, let me say it this way. It's like, if Christians are indistinguishable from non-Christians, we're pretty useless, we might as well be thrown out onto a path and walked on. He says, you've been called to be the salt of the earth in every area of your life, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your home. The salt of the earth. And then he also says, secondly, you are the light of the world. Look at that in verse 14 and 15. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light on a lamp, uh, no, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. See, salt's subtle, right? But light, light's not subtle. Light is bold. Light is bright. You can be in the darkest room possible and turn on a flashlight and that light is very obvious. It is very there. It dissolves immediately the darkness that is the room. The church was called, he says, you are to be the light of the world, that where there's darkness, where there's evil, where there's pain, where there's difficulty, you are called to be this beacon of light, this hope and truth and freedom and love to people in the world. With Martin Luther King Jr. Day ahead of us, I'm reminded of what the reverend said when he said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. The church was given this unique calling and this unique ability to be a light in a dark place, to bring hope and freedom where it is not right now. One thing I like too that he says, right, Jesus says that you are the light of the world. It's like this big thing. It kind of feels intimidating. And then he says it's like a city on a hill, right? A city on a hill in the middle of nowhere, its light will still travel for miles, if you've ever been like in the, out in the country or you've been maybe in one of the western states in the desert or something, you've seen this. It's called light pollution. The light of a city can travel for miles in the darkness. Right? And when it's in the darkness is where there's fear and danger, but the light has this sense of safety to it. He says, you're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. But then he gets even more close to home for you. He says, it's like a lamp in your house. Of course, you don't cover that light. You let it shine. You put it up so it can give light to the entire Home. If I could say it like this, it's the whatever your context, wherever you personally are, you have the God-given ability to bring the illuminating presence of God with you wherever you go. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. There's, there's a lady in our church, and she's the, the sweet, amazing woman. Everyone that's around her knows her and loves her. Her personality and energy is contagious. She's always kind and always like uplifting and happy and encouraging. And uh, she's always uh, hanging out in our church building on the weeks because she loves to grab lunch and support Mosaic Cafe. And 
A few months ago before the holidays, I went up to her and uh, was talking to her. And even, even this weekend, she's like, Adam, please don't use my name because I just don't feel worthy of you using my name, which is so much more of the reason when you know her, like, this is why you're worth talking about. So a few months ago before the holidays, I go up to her and because people that know her know that a year and a half ago, her husband passed away. And even though she always has this smile and laugh that's contagious, we know that when people have lost loved ones, it's difficult in the holiday seasons. Remember, I went up to her and I was like, hey, how you doing? How you doing with the holidays coming up? She looked at me, and you can tell there's probably some emotions behind what she was gonna say, and she said, you know, Adam, my entire life, our whole marriage, all I wanted was for my husband to know Jesus. And now he's with Jesus. How can I be too upset about that? That's salty. That is a bright light. That wasn't something she just said to make herself feel better. That was a peace that surpassed understanding. It came not just inside of her, but it was something that people around her felt that peace. There, there was this thing about her that people noticed when they're around her. And we have so many people in the life of our church like that, that I could talk about. That's what it looks like to be salt of the earth, light of the world. See, and I love too, you'll notice when Jesus says that you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, he first affirms our identity before he expects activity from us. He doesn't say, go be the salt, go be the light. No, he says, no, you are. I, I have made you. I have given you the identity. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Then he says, so be what salt is. Do what light does. Look how he says it. Jesus says it in verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. To be really clear, for anyone that's newer to church or newer to faith, these good deeds, these do not like earn us some kind of favor with God. This is not like a good person contest. Right? We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We are called to live out the salt and light nature that we have been given. And these good things that we do, these good works, these good deeds, they're not meant to make us look good in front of other people. If anything, later on in this best sermon ever, Jesus is about to say, don't do good things in front of other people to make yourself look good. See, but here what he's saying is there's supposed to be something about a Christian. There's supposed to be something about the church that when other people look, they don't say, wow, that's a good person. When other people see it, they're like, what's that person's deal? Like, where does that come from? How do they have such a peace in their situation right now? Why are they responding that way? I don't see people normally respond like that. It's this thing that way, the, the good deeds we show, these attributes, these qualities, these characteristics that we live out, these beatitudes that we live out, people look at these things and it shows God's glory. They see God's goodness in the things that we do and how we live. We have been given the influence to make the world a better place. And You've probably heard it said that there's a difference between good for goodness sake and good for God's sake. There's lots of kind and generous and compassionate and hospitable people in the world that do lots of nice and kind and generous things. And those are great. And followers of Jesus, we should do those things too. But again, it's not supposed to be about these just good things. There's qualities about these that are supposed to be uniquely Christian in the way that we live so that other people would see God. It would point them towards him. You've been given influence to make the world a better Place. It's kind of like this lamp, this light. I don't know what it's called. I uh, last service, I was staring at it too long, and then all of you were blurry. But you might not even notice this light up here, right? There's lots of lights in the room. The lights are bright in here. There's a lot of them up on the stage. 
But when this light becomes significant is if the rest of the lights in the room were dark. See, because then, even if you walk in this room and it was pitch black, you'd immediately be gravitated towards this light. You'd immediately see it. And even if this room is pitch black, this light would be enough for you to still see enough where to go. You'd be able to work your way towards me. But we also know that the further you are away from the light, the darker it is. And in the darkness back there, you might be tripping, you might be hitting your knee on something, but the closer you get, the better you are off. So this light itself is in a room of this size with this much darkness in here. This light is not enough to be sufficient. I actually need, hey, Will, can I call you out really quick? Do you got your phone on you by chance? Can you turn on your flashlight really quick and just like hold it up so everybody can see it? I'm calling you out, I apologize. I woke you up. (laughs) See, but you'll notice that my light is helpful and significant. But right away, your light, his light, is way more beneficial to the people around you. The people in your influence can see better from your light than from my light. All right, let's get all country concert just for a second. If you got a phone on you that has a flashlight, you mind pulling it out really quick? Don't be texting or Snapchatting me, uh, but just pull out your phone. And would you mind holding it up really quick? You can, even just, you can start doing, don't do that, please. Don't do that. You can start singing. I, was thinking, I thought about singing, but Annie told me I'm not allowed to do that when I have a mic on. But see, Quickly you notice that just these phone lights could light up a room like this. And it's pretty cool to see. It's pretty cool to see each of us that has this light. All right, before you all start singing something like Garth Brooks or something like that, put, go ahead and put your phone away. See, we have been called the light of the world. And just like this salt in a salt shaker, if it stays in here, It's not much good. In the same way, as cool as it is to be in a room where all of our light is shining in here and the room gets bright, if all the light of the church is in one space, then everything outside of these walls is still dark. You've been called the light to the world, the light of the world. The light is powerful and has its purpose fulfilled when it goes and shines in dark places. And you, even though you may not feel like it, you have been called and equipped to be the light. And just like if you keep your phone in your pocket, your light is not any good if you don't let it shine. You've been called the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And my favorite part about being the salt of the earth, my favorite part about being the light of the world is that we are not the source of that saltiness. We are not the source of that light. You might be thinking to yourself, you're like, Adam, I don't even know what that means. Like Adam, I don't even know what you're asking of me right now. And I don't really feel like I can do much. I don't, I don't feel like I can make the difference you expect me to make. I don't feel like I can have the impact you think I can have. I don't feel qualified or equipped to do something about everything I see in the world around me. And I get that, I, that is so fair. I felt that too. Like Adam, Adam as a person is broken, I'm messed up. Rather the, the glass or the globe of my light it's cracked, it's stained, and not like beautiful stained glass, more like the couch on the side of the road stained. Like I've said things to people and I've hurt people and I've done things in my life that I'm ashamed of and I believe broke God's heart. It is not our resume that makes us the light. It is the fact that we have surrendered to King Jesus and are following his ways. Jesus himself actually says in John that, in the Gospel of John, that he is the light of the world. In the same way that the moon reflects the light of the sun, followers of Jesus, our light merely reflects the light of Jesus. 
The Apostle Paul, he says in one of his letters to the church, he says that when all of us, when we live out these kind of characteristic qualities, when we are faithful to following who Jesus is, when we live the way we are called to live, we actually reflect God's glory. One of Jesus' best friends, the disciple John, he wrote a letter that's at the end of our Bible, and he says that when we live this way, when we live it out, that the world, even though right now they can't see God, with our physical eyes, we don't see God anymore. Jesus is no longer walking the earth like he used to, but when we live this out, the world actually sees God in us, in the church. We have a purpose. We have a mission. You have been given the influence to make the world a better place. So when you, uh, when you take a serious look at yourself, when you look in the mirror or when people around you look at you, do they see someone who has their feet up, is comfortably hanging out with their friends, strolling around on a cruise ship? Or do you see someone, do they see someone who knows their assignment, who gets their role, that understands their purpose, that knows the task they have on the battleship that helps out the greater mission. When you look at yourself, do you see someone who is poor in spirit? Do you see someone who is desperate for God? Do you see someone who mourns? Someone who, do you see someone in your heart that you're like, you know, I, I know that I am a sinner and I need the grace of Jesus? Do you see someone who is meek, someone who has strength, but you hold it back? Do, do people in your workplace see you as someone that puts others first, that lifts others up? Do they see you as a peacemaker? They're like, how is she so peaceful? How is she always calm? How is she building bridges where there's no other bridges? Do they see you as someone who's pure in heart? Do you have pure motives? Do you want the right things for the right reasons? Are you the same person behind closed doors as you are here on Sundays? Do they see someone who's merciful, who's gracious, who's forgiving? Do they see someone that when they face all kinds of things in life, difficult circumstances, they say, how, how do they have such a calm, confident trust? Do, do you see someone who says, you know, I, I believe that with Jesus, the best is yet to come. I believe that there's life after death. I believe that God has a plan for me. When you look at your life, do you see yourself as someone? Do people see you as someone? That the way you live, the way you talk, the way you treat people, the way you act in this world, it's salt and light. People believe and see in you that there is a God, that he is good, that he wants to know them. He wants to have a relationship. He's coming back again, and he wants them to have life and life to the fullest. See, the best sermon ever it's about the best life ever. And that life is trusting, believing, and following Jesus all the days of our life. Will you pray with me? God, you are good. You are faithful. God, I'm imagining right now what it would look like in our community, what it would look like in our neighborhoods, God, what it would look like in our workplaces, in our homes, if all of us lived like this. If all of us were spirit-filled and all of us believe that we have a part to play in your mission. God, we believe that's the best way to live. 
But God, also we recognize to you right now, God, we confess in this moment that we don't feel qualified for it. God, I confess that I don't feel qualified for the things you've called me to do. We don't feel like we have what it takes, God. And when we do it on our own strength, Lord, we know that we are just, we're clanging symbols. And God, we need you. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need you to be the one that's working in us. Otherwise, we just add to the chaos. We add to the noise. We add to the decay. So God, use us, use our church, use the other churches in our community to be a bright light to make this world a better place. For your kingdom, for your glory, for your honor, in Jesus' name. Amen.